Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time in episode 53, the very first episode in the Sausage Murder Factory, we're going to be talking about some things I learned during this move that actually apply to van life, whether you should consider a larger alternator or not, tale from the road involving a monster, and a product review of wind-up radios. Hello everyone, thanks for joining me once again. This is my very first time recording in what will become my new studio here, which is basically the second bedroom of the new condo I moved into. I have yet to figure out the acoustics. It appears to be a little bit more echoey here, and there are a lot more noises that can just happen. So please bear with me as I sort these things out. It's actually been a couple of weeks since I recorded an episode. Knowing that I was moving, I kind of preloaded some episodes so I wouldn't miss a week. And I am very tired. (laughs) So I'm going to talk a little bit about myself here because it's going to take the least amount of effort. And I apologize for that, but it's what I need to do to get through today. And I promise you it, it does apply to van life. So we moved last week, and the move went fairly well, but it's been a little challenging. The people who bought our last house actually wanted all of our furniture, too, which was great because that furniture didn't really fit in with our new place. Of course, that meant we had to get new furniture, which is a long and tedious process. But it also meant that we didn't have as much stuff to move, so I decided that I was going to simply move stuff myself with some help. Now, I am getting a little bit older, and I can't lift stuff like I used to. Plus, I have some really heavy stuff. I have a a pinball machine, for example, that I could not have gotten upstairs by myself. So I rented a van and then also hired a couple of guys to help me load the van. And that worked well. In two hours, these guys had loaded up almost everything into the van, and then I was able to finish it up. And they were actually excellent at loading the van. They must be pros at Tetris because everything just fit perfectly and nothing moved And it was great. And the van I got was interesting. It was a Ford E450, so that's a Super Duty Plus van, with a cube on the back, and that cube had what U-Haul calls Mom's Attic over the, the hood. Shout out to Chicagoland Truck Rentals. They were just the nicest people to deal with. They bent over backwards to help me out, and they even let me park the truck on their lot overnight. In fact... Not only did they let me park it on their lot, they pulled it into the garage and locked it up at night. So if you happen to be in Chicago and you need to rent a truck, definitely give Chicagoland Truck Rental a look. I am very happy with them. But the truck itself I want to talk about because people will often talk about cube vans being the ultimate van that you can convert, right? Because they're nice and square in the back and easy to build out and there's lots of space and they have a certain stealth factor. Well, this one... This one was really good like that. So it's an E450, so it's it's a bigger truck than your standard cube van. It's not enormous, but it was uh, 17 feet long. Uh, the, the box, that is. The, the whole rig was much longer than that. And it did have the over-the-cab extension, like most Class C motorhomes have. And it had the roll-up door in the back, which is kind of a problem with cube vans because that roll-up door isn't really convenient for you walking in and out of your van. And it had a liftgate elevator, which can actually be a good thing if you're building a van out of a cube because you can make it into like a porch. And it, it helps you pick up the heavy stuff too. But what this thing had that really made it ideal for converting into a camper was it had a side door. 
They called this a production van. And apparently it's popular with TV studios and movie companies and things like that. Because not only did it have the elevator in the back for big heavy stuff, it had a side door that was also a roll-up door, but a much more reasonable size, and built-in stairs into the body. So you would go down these aluminum diamond-plated stairs to the door, and then the door went up, and it would not have taken too much to modify that to be an easy in-and-out entrance for your house. And in the front there was a little door that would let you move between the cab and the back. So that was already built in. And again, complete stealth. It looks just like a truck. Now that's all the good things I can say about this thing. Now for the bad things. First off, the gas mileage. Wow. They charged me for three gallons of gasoline. And I kid you not, the total I traveled in this thing was nine miles. Now that might not be terribly accurate and I did have to leave it running a bit to operate the elevator in the back, the lift gate, and that may have used more gas than would normally be used, but yeah, you're going to use a lot of gas in these things. And that that's that's typical. You know, a big class A motorhome getting 7 miles a gallon is fairly normal. So there's that. Another thing is that I'm in the city, I'm in Chicago, and this thing is hard to park. Now, and obviously it's long, But it's also wide, and the streets here just aren't that wide. A lot of Chicago streets were built long before motor vehicles were imagined, and it just takes up too much space. If you are going to be spending a lot of time in cities, I don't think a cube van is a great solution for you. If you live way out west in Salt Lake City or something like that, a cube van could be great. But if you're going to be spending time in a city, especially a city towards the east, which, you know, these cities were laid out before automobiles and their streets are much narrower, a cube van may not be the way to go. Another thing to consider is that the box is pretty high up in the air. You're going to need stairs or a ladder or something to get up there. And also because of that, the suspension of the truck sways a lot more left to right, meaning that whatever you put in there, you're going to have to secure a lot more than you do in a normal van. I noticed that just going over potholes, it was very easy to set up a resonance where the van would start swaying back and forth, and all my stuff back there I could kind of hear rattling around, and if you had your normal living stuff back there, it would be doing the same thing. All that said, if I had to build out a home in that thing, I cannot think of a better blank slate for building out a camper. Not only do you have the big box area, which was, you know, had at least eight foot high ceilings, so you had all the room in the world. You also have a lot of space under the box to put tanks and propane cans and things like that. There's a ton of space under there. And your ground clearance is amazing. No, we're not talking about four-wheel drive here, but yeah, if you needed to go on some dirt roads in this thing, it wouldn't be a problem. (laughs) But if you needed to go, like, out in canyons and stuff, eh, that would be a problem. So, that was my experience with the van. Everything was fine there. And everything was going fine with the move entirely until I got to the new place. I am moving, or I've just moved, from a house into a condo. And uh, this is going to be the source of many tales on this podcast, I can tell you, as I try to build out a new van while living in a condo without a garage. I'm looking at that as a challenge and hopefully informative to you guys listening. But I started to have problems almost immediately. They started unloading the truck, and of course there's an elevator in the building, and we're only on the third floor, but it takes time to load the elevator, go up, unload the elevator, and get to the room. And after two hours, they informed me that they were out of time, 
and they had to leave. And I thought, oh, uh, yeah, that's true. I only booked you for two hours because that's how long I booked you to load the truck. But that's okay. I'm willing to pay extra. And they said, no, we have to leave. And they did. They just left. And I had a truck that was half filled with boxes and, most importantly, the furniture that we didn't sell, including my desk, my armoire, my filing cabinets, and the pinball machine. All of the heaviest things were on the truck and I had no one to help me. And to make things worse, because I'm living in a condo, I had to make a reservation for the elevator and the parking space in order to unload the truck. And I had an hour left. So I didn't even have the option of trying to call somebody or to go to Home Depot and pick up a few of those guys that are hanging around there looking for day work. I had to do it myself. I am not in very good shape. I am not somebody who exercises regularly and I don't know how, but yes, I moved all of that stuff into the apartment in the time that was needed. (laughs) Very glad I had the elevator. Very glad I know how to use a hand truck effectively and very glad that I didn't have any stairs to deal with. But by the time I got everything in, I was beat and I'm still beat. My everything hurts. And that's why this podcast is just a little bit stranger. But it has taught me that I'm in for a big adventure here, and I think it's an adventure that many of you may be about to have as well. If you're going to build out a van and you don't have a place to work, you have some special concerns, and I have to overcome these things, and I'm not exactly sure how. So one of the problems was that the unit came with a garage parking space, which is great. Now, my wife gets the garage space. That's the rule. She's the one who makes all the money. She's the one who gets the parking space. She's the one who gets the nice warm car. That is perfect and fine and all is right with the world. And, heck, she goes to work, and then I've got that parking space during the day, and I could take the van in there and work on it. That all sounds reasonable, except for two things. One is that there's a policy against working on your vehicle in the garage, and my NV200 barely fits in there. I have about an inch clearance to get into the garage. So if I'm going to buy a new van, it can't be any higher than an NV200. And that limits it (laughs) pretty much to NV200s. And I'm not going to buy another NV200. I already have one. There's my first challenge. So I just leased an outdoor space. This is unusual for Chicago, but this building has a lot of outdoor parking space behind the building. We don't have an alley here, which is very strange for Chicago. And that takes back to this place's history as a sausage factory. But they have the same policy. You can't work on your vehicle in the outdoor spaces. Now, okay, there's policies and then there's what you can get away with. And, you know, I figure as long as you're reasonable and you're not like dropping the engine in the parking lot or leaving big oil stains or whatever, it's not going to be a problem. But today, when I parked in the space for the first time, I noticed just how narrow it is. NV200 is a narrow van. It's built for cities. And it fits in the space, but there isn't much room left. I think Promaster may not actually fit side to side in this space. I mean, I think you couldn't open the door. I think you'd hit the other cars, and it would be line to line. And as I'm thinking about a new van to buy, well, that creates a problem. Because when you buy a van, you have to consider your personal circumstances. Now, if you're going to live in the van full time and travel the country, you can do whatever you want because you can tailor where you are to the van you have. 
But that's not the situation I'm in, at least not right now. I am in the situation where I'm living in a condo and have certain things that I'm limited by, and one of them is a place to park. The only van that it looks like might make sense for me to upgrade to right now is a Mercedes Metris, because it is a similar size to the NV200, but significantly longer. So I I don't know. Um, If you're going to listen to this podcast, you're going to come along with me on this journey. I think I'm going to add a segment at the end. For folks who don't care, they can just stop listening there, but I might add five minutes. But it isn't going to start anytime soon because I've still got to finish moving in. So a few lessons I've learned here. Make sure that you know where you're going to work on your vehicle when you decide it's time to do this. I've heard of people doing their entire builds in Home Depot parking lots but it is an entirely different thing to be living in your van while you're working on it. There are things that make that very difficult. Uh, Painting for one. Let's say you paint the inside of your van. You're going to then sleep inside your van that night? That doesn't sound great. And there are an awful lot of places that won't let you work on your vehicles on their property, including nearly all campgrounds. Campgrounds are not merciful in these cases that's it i'm going to leave you with that story there and uh by the way if you're curious about the sausage murder factory that i keep referring to i'll have a link in the show notes but there was a famous murder in this building and it was the crime of the century albeit the 19th century and it's fairly famous in chicago all the ghost tours stop here and i'm kind of excited about (laughs) about living in a place with such an unusual history And this has nothing to do with van life, but I'm actually going to do a lot more research in the building, and I'm going to do a few tours of the building, including the basement, which is where a lot of the bad things happened. So if you're interested in that, you know, maybe friend me on Facebook or something, and you'll you'll see the links for that. But I'm not going to bother the van life folks with that too much. Tech Talk. Larger alternators. Should you get a larger alternator for your vehicle? Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. A lot of vans, especially if you're looking at like a minivan or maybe a car, the alternators are sized to be just enough to power the things that come with it. If you get a commercial van, usually the alternators are a bit beefier than normal. I I know in my NV200, the alternator is a bit larger than you would find in a normal four-cylinder vehicle. And, uh, and a lot of times, if you have a big fancy stereo system or something like that, they'll ask if you want a bigger alternator. But for camping use, does it make sense? Well, it might, but it might not. Let's say you have a 100 amp alternator. Well, that means that the most your alternator can produce is 100 amps. And then you add a whole bunch of batteries and you want to charge those with the alternator and you're thinking, well, I've got 300 amp hours of batteries. I should get a bigger alternator because that's going to take a lot to charge. So you put in a 200 amp battery. Well, the thing is that that rating, that 200 amps, isn't how much the alternator is always putting out. It's how much it can put out. And it's only going to put that out when your engine is at its highest RPMs. If you just turn the van on and you're just idling you're not going to get that 200 amps or even that 100 amps. You're just going to get that same maybe 50 amps or whatever. Now, the engine will adjust based on how much power is being drawn, but that can be a little tricky too. And if you've got a smart alternator, it's a whole different thing. Basically, if you don't have lithium batteries, getting a bigger alternator isn't really going to help you out all that much because you'll be increasing the maximum amperage, 
but that alternator isn't going to be any better for sending out a sustained amount of current over time. Remember that the way starter batteries work is that they discharge all their energy at once and they recharge very quickly. Your batteries in the back aren't necessarily going to be like that. Not only is there expense, but it's going to mess up the way your engine is configured when you take it to places for repairs. You may have different belts. You may have a bigger, physically bigger alternator that's now in the way of other things. Also, another thing you consider, especially if you have a, st a standard full-size van like an Econoline or a Chevy Express, is you can get another alternator. Uh, if you are running a 24-volt system, this is actually a very good idea because you can get a 24-volt alternator added on. So you have your 12-volt alternator for all your normal 12-volt stuff, and then for your 24-volt battery pack in the back, that's charged by this alternator. The bottom line with this is that it's not always a good idea it can be a difficult install, but if you live way up in Canada where you're going to be camping in the winter and you're not going to be getting any solar, or if you need a whole lot of power because your rig is entirely electric, an alternator upgrade can make some sense. But make sure to do full research before you jump into that. Tales from the road. All right, this one's mine. This is... um. A bit of a tale from way back, about 1983, I would guess. So I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. Yes, that's Salem. And Salem, Mass. was pretty much like your Fisher-Price kind of toy city in that it had everything that a city has. We had a downtown with tall buildings, we had some farms, we had some woods, we had rivers, we had hills, we had an ocean, we had trains, we had like everything that a city could have, we had some version of. Including monsters, apparently. So when I first started going camping, there were reports that there was some sort of a monster loose in the city, and nobody was sure what it was. They found tracks, and something killed a 1,000-pound pig on someone's farm on the outskirts of town. So whatever this was, it was big enough to kill a pig. And now this is back in the 80s. This is before coyotes came into play. There were no big animals around. The, the, nothing that you can think of could do this. Uh, you know, people thought, oh, it was a pack of wild dogs. I mean, that was possible. But when they analyzed the prints they most closely matched a fishing cat. Now, that's not a fisher cat. A fisher cat is kind of like a little wolverine. It isn't a cat at all. This is a fishing cat, and it is an, it's an actual wild cat from Southeast Asia. For some reason, they always blame the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels let this thing loose in the city, and it was wreaking havoc. As a kid, I'm hearing these reports that there's a monster loose in the city, and I was, what, 13 or 14 at the time, and I was following this with rapt attention. I mean, what could this be? So anyway, I go out and go camping with my Boy Scout troop in Salem Woods, as it was called. Like I said, this little Fisher-Price town, of course we had the woods. And it was, you know, it was maybe a square mile of woods. It wasn't deep in the woods, but it was woodsy enough. And we did, you know, primitive camping. We're out there just in tents, and one morning... 
during the monster scare, I wake up with the first daylight, and it was maybe 5.30 or 6 in the morning because it was getting close to being summertime, and I hear a cat, and it roars like a mountain lion. I mean, it was just like those old Mercury Cougar commercials. If you're as old as I am, you know what I'm talking about. At the sign of the cat. And I just sat there frozen in my tent. The monster was real, and I heard it. But I had to pee. <laughs> so, this is an interesting moment. <laughs> Which wins? Your desire to pee, or your fear of the monster? Or cat? Well, it turned out that, for me, the desire to pee wins. So I, I opened the tent, and I went out and did my business, and very deliberately went back into the tent and zipped it up and stayed in my sleeping bag and didn't hear a thing. And that was the end of the monster. There were no other reports of it, no other sightings. Whatever the heck it was, it had just disappeared. And since my very last interaction or hearing about that cat was hearing a cat in the woods... I figure it was my peeing that scared it off. So, I've got that going for me. Product review. This is a by-request product review. A longtime listener by the name of Antoine, hello Antoine, asked me to review wind-up radios because Antoine is convinced that the power grid's gonna go down and we're all gonna need these things and, well heck, whether he's right or wrong doesn't really matter because I think everybody should have one of these things. So what am I talking about? These are handheld radios that you can power with the hand crank. There's a rechargeable battery in there and the good ones will have a lithium battery. If you crank it up for like three minutes, that'll give you a couple of hours of listening to the radio. Now I'm not gonna review a specific model because there's hundreds of models out there, but I will tell you what to look for when you buy one. First, decide if you want to get a cheap one or a good one. You can get decent ones for about 20 bucks, or you can get a really good one for maybe 40 or 50 bucks. I have one, it's an Aton Scorpion 2, rugged, multi-powered weather radio and flashlight. And I've used it for years now, and it has this little solar panel in it, and you can crank it up, and you can also charge it USB or use an AC adapter, which I don't have. What I like about this one is that it has a belt clip, and it has many of the things I think you should look for. Yes, it has the hand crank. Yes, it has a flashlight, and you might think, I've already got a flashlight, I don't need it. But this is for emergency use. You want everything to have a flashlight for emergency use. <laughs> so it's got that, and it has weather radio. That's like the minimum you want these things to have. Now this one's also waterproof to some degree. You can leave it outside and not worry about it. But I do have some problems with it, and, and these are those. It's digital. And while that's okay, and it has some nice things where it'll memorize radio stations for you and stuff, I'd rather it wasn't digital because it's hard to change channels. It's hard to change the volume. You have to look at this little tiny LCD screen, which is hard to read. It would just be much easier if it had good old fashioned knobs. Also, the, the LED flashlight on this thing works, but the quality of the light is weird. It's not a flat beam. It's very ripply, if you know what I mean, and it's very colored. It adds color, and it makes it hard to actually figure out what you're looking at. But the biggest thing you need to know about these is that the solar panels 
are not going to charge this thing in any reasonable amount of time. It takes about a week to fully charge this thing on solar. So the solar panel is nice to have, but it is not really going to be your main way of charging this. You're probably going to charge it mostly USB or if you really need it by cranking it up. This one was about 40 bucks. This was not a cheap one. I, I kind of feel like it is not necessarily the best option, but this is what I think you should do if you're going to get one of these things. Now, if you're going to go cheap, just get the cheapest one you can. Just make sure it has a flashlight, weather radio, and hand crank. Those are the minimums. But if you're going to spend some money on it, make sure it has these things. All those things I just mentioned, but also weather band alert radio. That is a mode where you can set it on so that it will alert you if there's a weather alert. That is super useful and super important. The idea behind these is you're going to use them out in the boonies when you don't have anything else. And heck, if there's an F4 tornado coming down you, you want it to tell you without you having to listen to it. That is an important thing. The other thing is that make sure you can use it to actually charge your phone if you need to. It'll take a really long time. But hey, if you're in an emergency situation and your phone's dead, you'll crank that thing for 10 minutes to be able to make a phone call. I mean, I know I would. A lot of these have flip-up solar panels, which again, the solar panel isn't worth all that much, but there's a light under the solar panel, and that makes it much more versatile for like a reading lamp or whatever. And finally, and this is a thing that isn't as useful as it used to be, shortwave radio. Back when I was a teenager, shortwave radio was great because shortwave just travels a lot farther. I could listen to the BBC broadcast from England on shortwave. A lot of the shortwave radio stations have shut down, and I'm not sure what's out there anymore. But still, if I had the option, I would like to have the shortwave radio. So make sure you read the reviews and take a close look at these. But I do recommend you have one, and I find that I use it all the time. I'll have a link in the show notes to a bunch of these. A place to visit. So the place I really want you to visit is called Waitomo, and it is in New Zealand on the North Island. I don't expect you to drive your van there, but if you happen to be in New Zealand and you're on the North Island, absolutely go visit Waitomo. But if you're in the U.S., you can go to someplace very similar, and it's called Dismal's Canyon in Campbell, Alabama. Now, why am I telling you to go to this place? Because it's the only place in the United States, actually in North America, from what I can tell, where you can see dismalites. And what's a dismalite? Well, a dismalite is commonly called a glowworm. Not that that's entirely true. But let me describe the experience for you. These canyons are small, moss-covered canyons that you walk through. And during the day, they're just kind of pretty little cool spaces with waterfalls and such. But at night... The dismalites give off a piercing blue light. It's the most blue of any bioluminescent creature. And it makes the walls look like a galaxy. Hundreds and thousands of little points of exquisite blue light. And it's absolutely one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Now, these things that you're seeing are actually fly larvae. They're not worms. And they produce this light to attract insects. In the end, this is a little bit disgusting, but you're not going to see any of this, but they attract insects towards the light, and then the insect lands, and then they're instantly engulfed in this long mucus stream, and then the fly larvae eats them. And oddly, the flies only live for a day. They spend most of their time at larvae, which is good for us, because then we get this experience. Forget all the biology. Just go and experience this thing 
for yourself. It is one of the wonders of nature, and I'm thrilled that there's one in the United States. Now, I have not been to the one in the United States. I am going to try to get there this next year. But I've been to the one in New Zealand, or one of the many in New Zealand, and it is amazing. Now, this place has very strict rules. You can only do tours on certain nights of the year, and because of COVID and everything, they're closed down until March at the earliest. But it's well worth it. There are quite a few different things you have to pay for, like entrance to the park and then for the tour. It's still worth it. That is Dismal's Canyon in Campbell, Alabama. I'll have a link in the show notes. And boy, this is the kind of place that when you go there and take one of these tours, you're going to talk about it for the rest of your life. All right, really quick resource recommendation. You know how you bought your van and you've got these screw holes and you want to put a screw in there again, but you don't know what size it is? I mean, this happened to me several times in the Nissan. Well, there's a way to find out screw hole sizes that's pretty easy, and that is uh, Home Depot. Yeah, Home Depot has these boards set up in the screw aisle where you can try out the nuts and bolts, and it will tell you what size they are. Let's say you're looking for a nut. You take the bolt to Home Depot and try it out and all the nuts they have on this board, and when you find it that it fits... It'll say right next to it, it's an, oh, it's an M8, or it's a 3 8 or whatever. It can really be useful when you're looking for just the right bolt. Q&A. A few episodes ago, actually, I think it was episode 50, I did 50 tips, and I was talking about pee bottles. And someone by the name of Liz wrote to me and said, well, hey, you know, there are options for women, too. So not being a woman and not having the necessary hardware to do what she is suggesting, I'm simply going to read what she wrote to me, and it may be useful to you as well. So this is from Liz. We think of pee bottles as a guy thing, and the bottles are, but women can easily pee in wide mouth jars, not the mason kind. They get thin at the top. Think a large peanut butter jar. The simplest technique is to sleep in a nightie that goes around your knees. Then when you need to go, you simply kneel like in prayer. There's got to be a better way to describe that. Put the jar between your upper legs and voila! It's super private because the nightie covers everything. And you don't miss because the jar covers the whole area. It's best to leave a little air and not make a perfect seal or pressure builds and can actually make it hard to pee. It's harder during the day with pants, but having a wraparound skirt to use gives you privacy if needed. Once you're good at it, you can actually get away with locations that guys can't get away with. Might be useful to some of your female listeners, Liz. Well, Liz, thank you very much. I'm very happy that you would share that with us. For our female listeners, I hope they find that tip useful. And if not, I hope they found the imagery at least amusing. So (laughs) thank you for that. Thank you for listening to this episode 53. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. I appreciate you putting up with the rather odd episode this week. I promise we will get back to normal next week. And as the new year comes, we will have some new things. We do have a Facebook group. It is called Built to Go, a Facebook group. And you can find us there. Until next time, remember what Jamie Lynn Beatty says. Jobs fill your pocket. Adventures fill your soul. <laughs>